Today is March 9th, 2022. Just a reminder that daylight saving times begin Sunday, March the 13th, and end Sunday, November the 6th. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and the other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is www.pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. prn.live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. We are nearing now, almost at the beginning of a third year, of a home lockdown which was begun back on March the 19th, 2020. I'm eagerly looking forward to returning into the studio for live calls from you, the listening audience. In the meantime, however, you can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Amazon is closing all 68 of its books, four-star, and pop-up physical stores. The company is refocusing on grocery and fashion stores. Amazon is closing most of its physical stores. The company announced that all 68 of its Amazon Books, Amazon 4-Star, and Amazon Pop-Up locations across the United States and the UK set to close while the company refocuses on its grocery and fashion stores. Amazon Books was one of the primarily online storefronts first physical retail experiences when the first location opened in Seattle in 2015. Amazon has since expanded to 24 bookstores across the United States, all of which are now slated to be closed down. The company will go on to expand its retail efforts with the Amazon 4-Star in 2018, with a more generally focused store that sold products with a 4-Star a higher rating curated from Amazon's digital storefront, along with Amazon's own first-party products, which included Echo, Kindle, and Fire TV devices. Amazon pop-up stores, on the other hand, were smaller, more focused, more experiences that offered rotating theme products. All of Amazon's retail locations, however, helped serve a physical contact point to return Amazon products, in addition to offering lower prices and perks to Amazon Prime subscribers. The company's physical locations have performed far worse than its digital storefront in recent years. Amazon isn't exiting brick-and-mortar stores entirely. The company will continue to operate its Amazon Fresh and Whole Foods grocery stores, as well as its Amazon Go convenience stores with their unique cashier-less model. Amazon's experimental Amazon-style clothing store is still also sticking around. Amazon closing up its physical shops timing will vary from store to store. Well, there are a lot of robocalls out there, and Ohio has a new law that cracks down on robocalls. A new Ohio state law will help crack down on companies who use technology to create a phony caller ID. Last year, more than 23,000 Ohioans complained to the Attorney General's office about unwanted robocalls. Now a new state law in Ohio 
will help crack down on companies who use technology to create a phony caller ID. The unwanted practice is cost spoofing. It's when robocallers use a phone number that might look familiar to your area code in an attempt to get you to pick up the phone. In Ohio, Senate Bill 54 makes any attempt to use technology to create these inaccurate or misleading caller IDs illegal. The new law also increases the penalty for spoofing to a felony of the fourth degree when the victim is an elderly person, adult with disabilities, or an active duty service member or their spouse. And here are some of the changes in the law that will provide the Ohio Attorney General more tools to take the legal action. SB 54 allows the Attorney General to take action against third parties, such as voice service providers, for assisting robocallers. The AG office provides the following example. Let's say a call comes in and the robocall claims to be a debt collector or is posing as the IRS. Under this new prohibition, the Attorney General can take legal action against a voice service provider for facilitating the call. Before SB 54, the Attorney General's office was limited to bringing action against third parties for assisting callers that violate TSR, that's telemarketing sales rules, only and could only file those actions in federal court. With the passage of SB 54, the Attorney General in the state can now bring an action against the third parties for assisting robocallers that send a non-sales cause and violate Telephone Consumer Protection Act. Those actions can be presented in state court. Number two, SB 54 also allows the Attorney General to use the Ohio Consumer Sales Practices Act if the deceptive call takes place during the course of a consumer transaction. The AG office provided a following example. We all have received those car warranty calls claiming you can extend your warranty. That is a deceptive robocall, and the AG can now bring violations of the Consumer Protection Act because they are claiming to sell you something. Number three in SB 54 also authorizes the Attorney General to prosecute violations of spoofing and telecommunications fraud if a county prosecutor declines to present to grand jury within 45 days after being presented evidence. Gee, I wish all the other states would follow suit. And might I add, there's one more thing they can add. I realize one bad apple spoiling the barrel is causing the problem, but perhaps we could consider just look at the greater good by eliminating all robocalls. Right now, robocalls are permitted by politicians and nonprofit organizations. Well, by trying to be in the middle of the road with some of it to take place, you're basically granting anyone can get away with it. Backblaze is a cloud storage and data backup company. Its two main products are their B2 cloud storage and computer backup services, targeted at both business and personal markets. Backblaze stores each file redundantly across multiple drives, in multiple servers, and in multiple locations in their data centers. Backblaze has four data centers, three are in the United States and one is in Europe. Backblaze report finds SSDs, solid-state drives are as reliable as hard disk drives. The study includes data from over 200,000 disk drives. But they warn the sample size on solid-state drives is a bit small 
to leap to big conclusions. Backblaze has published the first solid-state drive edition of its regular drive statistics report, which appears to show that flash drives are as reliable as spinning disks, although with surprising failure rates for some models. The cloud storage and backup provider publishes quarterly and annual drive stats reports, which focus exclusively on rotating hard drives until last year. Backblaze said that it will initially publish the solid-state drive edition twice a year, but that this may change depending on how valuable readers find it. The 2021 Drive Stats Report was published in February. Backblaze said the solid-state drives are all used as boot drives in the firm's storage servers, and that Backblaze only began using solid-state drives this way in the fourth quarter of 2018. They pointed out that the drives do more than just boot the servers, They also store log files and temporary files produced by the servers, so each solid-state drive will read, write, and delete files depending on the activity of the server during the day. At the end of 2021, Backblaze had a total of 2,200 solid-state drives in its storage servers, but these had been built up from zero starting in the fourth quarter of 2018, and so some have been in use for longer than others, and some models are also represented by a small number of examples which can skew results. Looking at the annual solid-state drive failure rates for just 2021, Backblaze pointed out there is an extremely wide confidence interval for each drive. Backblaze considers a respectable confidence interval to be less than 1%, with 0.6% or lower being optimal. Only one solid-state drive meets the 1% cutoff. Looking at the cumulative annualized failure rates for all solid-state drives since the start of 2019, Backblaze finds that the data curve fits nicely below the target 2% mark. However, the firm warns that its total solid-state drive in service is a relatively small number of drives, on which to start basing any conclusion. That said, the more data, the better. And as solid-state drives age, they'll want to be even more on alert to see how long they last. They have plenty of data on that topic for hard disk drives, but they are still learning about solid-state drives. Looking at three of the older solid-state drive models that Backblaze has in operation, the firm found that all three had cumulative annualized failure rates below 1% for 2021, which compares with the cumulative for all solid-state drives at 1.07%. For comparison, the cumulative annualized failure rate for Backblaze large numbers of installed hard drives was 1.4%, as noted in its 2021 Drive Stats report. Backblaze was keen to stress that the two groups of drives cannot be considered to be at the same point in their life cycle, and the firm will continue to build its comparison of solid-state drives and hard disk drives over time as it gathers more information on the two groups. The drive data is made available by Backblaze for anyone to download and analyze for themselves. The data contains figures for two extra drive models, Samsung 850 EVO 1TB, and HP solid-state drive S700 250 gigabytes, 
which are not included in the report because they were used by Backblaze for testing purposes. To recap, the failure rate of hard disk drive is under 1%, and the failure rate for the much smaller sampling of solid-state drive is under 2%. Dmitry Rogozin, who is the CEO of Roscosmos, which is the equivalent of NASA for Russia, made the remarks in an interview saying that the decision was a response to the sanctions levied by the United States after Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. What he suggested was that the American astronauts use broomsticks in space after Russia announced it would stop supplying rocket engines to the United States. He said, in this situation, we can no longer supply the United States without rocket engines that are the best in the world. Let them fly in something else like their brooms or whatever. But at least we're freezing our shipments. According to the Roscosmos head, Russia has delivered 122 RD-180 engines to the United States since the 1990s, of which 98 have been used to power Atlas launch vehicles. Rogozin said that Russia would stop working with Germany on joint experiments on the International Space Station because of the European countries' unacceptable actions, according to the TASS news agency. His statements follow the announcement that Roscosmos is suspending cooperation with the European Space Agency on launches from the spaceport in French Guiana in retaliation for the sanctions imposed by the European Union. The European Union Commissioner for Space downplayed the significance of the Russian move, saying it would not have consequences for Galileo, the ESA satellite navigation system, or Copernicus, its Earth observation project. In a statement by the EU Commissioner, we will take all relevant decisions in response to this decision in due course and continue developing resolutely the second generation of these two EU sovereign space infrastructures. We are ready to act decisively together with the member states to protect these critical infrastructures in case of aggression and continue to develop Ariane 6 and Vega C to ensure Europe's strategic autonomy in the area of launches. In London, the UK government has rejected an ultimatum from Russia to sell its share in space-based internet service OneWeb in order to allow a satellite launch to go ahead. OneWeb has been preparing to launch 36 satellites into low Earth orbit from Katsasan on a Soyuz rocket. Roscosmos sought assurances that the rocket would not be used for military purposes before declaring that it would not allow the Russian Cosmodrome to launch the satellites unless the UK sold its stake in OneWeb. Britain's business secretary said no sale would take place. There's no negotiation on OneWeb. The UK government is not selling its share, and we are in touch with other shareholders to discuss the next steps. Elon Musk points to recent SpaceX launch to mock Russia's suggestion that the United States might have to fly into space on broomsticks after rocket sales stopped. Musk hit back at the Russian space chief's suggestion the U.S. fly to space on broomsticks. Musk tweeted, American broomsticks pointing to SpaceX rocket launch hours after the comment. 
Elon Musk took a jab at Russia's recent suggestion the United States would have to get to space on broomsticks after the sale of Russian rocket engines was halted. Hours after Rogozin's comments, SpaceX launched 47 of its own Starlink satellites into orbit using the company's Falcon 9 rocket. Musk responded to a video of SpaceX launch on Twitter with a screenshot of Rogozin's comments highlighted along with the words, American broomstick and four U.S. flags. It's not the first time Musk has confronted Rogozin. When Rogozin criticized Musk for offering Starlink internet in Ukraine, Musk tweeted, Ukraine's civilian internet was experiencing strange outages. Bad weather, perhaps? So SpaceX is helping fix it. Starlink, SpaceX satellite internet service, now has more than 2,000 satellites in orbit. Musk warned Starlink users in Ukraine to turn on the system only when needed because they could be targeted amid the invasion. So I guess what the Russians are saying that unless we lift our sanctions that have been imposed on them, we're not going to get any rockets from them and we won't be able to get into space. Hey, Scotty, beam me up. Internet backbone provider shuts off service in Russia. Cogent Communications, an internet backbone provider that routes data across intercontinental connections, has cut ties with Russian customers over its invasion of Ukraine, as first reported by the Washington Post. The U.S.-based company is one of the world's largest internet backbone providers and serves customers in 50 countries, including a number of high-profile Russian companies. Cogent cited economic sanctions and the increasingly uncertain security situation as the motives behind its total shutdown in the country. Cogent said that it terminated its contracts with Russian customers in compliance with the European Union's move to ban Russian state-backed media outlets. Some of the company's most prominent Russian customers include the state-backed telecom giant Rostelcom, Russian search engine Yandex, and two of Russia's largest mobile carriers, Megafon and Vion. Unplugging Russia from Cogent's global network will likely result in slower connectivity, but won't completely disconnect Russians from the Internet. Traffic from the Cogent former customers will instead fall back on other backbone providers in the country potentially resulting in network congestion. There isn't any indication as to whether other internet backbone providers will also suspend services in Russia. Digital rights activists have criticized Cogent's decision to disconnect itself from Russia, arguing that it could prevent Russian civilians from accessing credible information about the invasion. Cutting Russians off from the internet access cuts them off from the sources of independent news and the ability to organize anti-war protests. However, Cogent said that its move isn't intended to hurt anyone, and the company doesn't want to keep Russian civilians from accessing the Internet. Cogent's goal is to prevent the Russian government from using the company's networks for cyber attacks and propaganda. The Hubble Space Telescope's 
Advanced Camera for Surveys, otherwise known as the ACS, celebrates 20 years of groundbreaking discovery. The ACS continues to deliver groundbreaking science. When astronauts installed the Advanced Camera for Surveys on March the 7th, back in 2002, the Hubble Space Telescope was already famous for taking deep images of the distant universe. ACS went even deeper pushing humanity's view of the universe back to within 435 million years of the Big Bang and capturing images of the earliest objects in the cosmos. It also helped map the evolution of clusters of galaxies. The longevity and consistency of the ACS is critical for monitoring cosmic phenomena over time. In its 20 years aboard Hubble, ACS has taken over 125,000 pictures and spawned numerous discoveries. For 20 years, the advanced camera for surveys has unveiled intriguing new secrets of the universe, looking deep into space with unprecedented clarity from onboard NASA's Hubble Space Telescope. With its wide field of view, sharp image quality, and high sensitivity, ACS has delivered many of Hubble's most impressive images of deep space. Former astronaut Mike Massimino, one of the two spacewalking astronauts who installed the ACS, remembers, We knew ACS would add so much discovery potential to the telescope, but I don't think anybody really understood everything it could do. It was going to unlock the secrets of the universe. ACS has lived up to that promise. Following its installation, ACS became Hubble's most frequently used instrument. Among its many accomplishments, the camera has helped map the distribution of dark matter, detected the most distant objects in the universe, searched for massive planets, and studied the evolution of clusters of galaxies. When ACS was installed on the Hubble, the telescope was already famous for taking deep images of the distant universe, like the Hubble Deep Field. However, because ACS was so powerful, Relative to earlier cameras, it became routine to see very distant galaxies in the background of Hubble images, even when we were looking at nearby objects. The advanced camera for surveys represented a new paradigm for Hubble Space Telescope instruments when it was designed. It has lived up to expectations, proving to be one of Hubble's most scientifically productive instruments. The advanced camera for surveys has opened our eyes to a deep, an active universe for two decades. We are anticipating still more discoveries with the camera, in conjunction with Hubble's other science instruments for many years to come. In undoubtedly its most important observations, ACS revealed a series of the deepest portraits of the universe ever achieved by mankind. In the original Hubble Ultra Deep Field, unveiled in 2004, ACS teamed up with the Hubble's near-infrared camera and multi-object spectrometer to capture light from galaxies that existed about 13 billion years ago, some 400 to 800 million years after the Big Bang. This million-second-long exposure revealed new insights into some of the first galaxies to emerge from the so-called Dark Ages. The time shortly after the Big Bang when the first stars reheated the cold, dark universe. In later versions, ACS teamed up with other Hubble instruments to refine the depth and reach of the original Hubble Ultra Deep Field. 
These portraits push humanity's view of the universe back to within 435 million years of the Big Bang, capturing images of the earliest objects in the cosmos, and they forever change our view of the universe and spawn innumerable collaborations. ACS sharpness combined with its behemoth natural lens revealed remote galaxies previously beyond even Hubble's reach. The results shed light on galaxy evolution and dark matter in space. The ACS was built especially for studies of such distant objects. These findings further support observations and theories that galaxies formed relatively early in the history of the cosmos. The existence of such massive clusters in the early universe agrees with a cosmological model wherein clusters form from the merger of many subclusters in a universe dominated by cold dark matter. The precise nature of cold dark matter, however, is still not known. Astronomers using ACS found supernovas that exploded so long ago they provide new clues about the accelerating universe and its mysterious dark energy. ACS can pick out the faint glow of these very distant supernovas. The ACS then dissect their light to measure their distances, study how they fade, and confirm that they are a special type of exploding star called a Type 1a supernova that are reliable distance indicators. Type 1a supernovas glow at a predictable peak brightness, which makes them reliable objects for calibrating vast intergalactic distances. Since its installation, ACS has been hunting for these supernovas in the early universe. Presenting Benjamin Rockwell with the IT Pro Series. Building Your Brand on LinkedIn, Part 1 of 3. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where I'm going to give you just a little bit of insight into things you can do to improve yourself in the workplace, or in this case, with LinkedIn. We're going to start a three-part series in regards to building your brand on LinkedIn, building you up and making you better through LinkedIn. Now, LinkedIn, if you're not familiar with this, this is the social media platform, the Facebook of the professional world. This is where you can utilize the power of all of the different employees and employers that you've worked with, your co-workers over the course of your career to become a better employee at a new location so this is this is very likely how you're going to get your next job when we look at all of the different things that are out there. So I want you to build your brand. I want you to leverage LinkedIn better than everybody else. And that's kind of hard because... There are a lot of people out there that are doing a number of different things for LinkedIn. Let's start off with the very first one. I want you to reconsider your LinkedIn photo. Every time I look around, I see somebody on LinkedIn or I see somebody in the professional world and the pictures that they are using are really bad. I would say that nine out of ten pictures look worse than my picture. And only one out of ten to look better than than mine. Now, I want to change that 
And no matter where you're at, you want to change it as well. So you want to get rid of that that photo that has you kind of leaning over. You're, 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 it's been cropped. Your previous significant other has been you know, removed from that strategically, surgically. They're no longer there. But it looks bad. I want you to get rid of that picture that looks like you did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I want you to I want you to go on out and I want you to find a professional photographer. It's worth spending $100 for them to go and take a matter of 50 photos for of you and for you to get that really good picture or even multiple pictures that represent you, current you. Now, I also want you to go through and I want you to customize your LinkedIn profile's URL. It doesn't help if you are LinkedIn.com forward slash XYQ1273. Nobody's going to know that. No, what you want is you want it to read something like LinkedIn.com forward slash in forward slash Benjamin Rockwell. Now, you don't want it to be that because, well, that's already taken. I won't say who has that, but you might have a clue. So, yes, this is something you want. You want it to professionally represent you. Not a bunch of letters and numbers, not uh, LinkedIn.com forward slash, you know, purple rabbit. I I, I don't know. You want it to be something good. You want it to represent you professionally. And again, we go back to LinkedIn is about you being represented professionally. So you're going to utilize your description and all of the details you have to represent and sell yourself to the people that that are going to be hiring You want this to be a representation of you as your first day on the job. And, you know, if 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 you think, oh, yeah, on my first day on the job, I wear, you know, I I, I wear a T-shirt and tennis shoes. No, no, this isn't the kind of representation I'm talking about. Everything from top to bottom should be professional. It should really represent the kind of person that you are. And and this should be a, a, just kind of that sales position. It's that thirty seconds that you have to to say, "Hey, I am the right person for your open position." Now you're going to set your profile to public, and this is something you should have this out there. Anybody should be able to go on out and look at your profile. I've already, yeah, I already have given you my profile, so you can look at mine, and it's geared, it, it's been professional, I, I hired a professional to gear up how it should look, and and he went through, and it's, it's, it's slightly old, I need to go and I need to update it again, but this is something we'll talk about in a matter of the next couple of episodes, where we're going to talk about some of the other ways of building your brand on LinkedIn, but This kind of right now, I want you to think about this both now and in the future, a matter of approaching LinkedIn like a living resume. So you're going to constantly update. You're going to constantly review and refresh everything that you have online through LinkedIn. But even even beyond that, so everything I've just stated here, you want to update this information 
and everything I'm going to talk about in the next couple of weeks, you want to update all of this across all of the different platforms in the hopes that you get a better job than what you have right now. I don't care if you've worked for where you're at for 20 years or two years. We're always going to be needing to look at what our next position is, what our next step up, step forward, our next building block that we're going to climb to become a better employee, perhaps at a different company, perhaps even at the same company we're at right now. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Historically, CPUs have rapidly increased performance in accordance with an informal rule of thumb called Moore's Law. Moore's Law is an observation that the processing power of the processor doubles roughly every two years. Moore's Law states that every couple of years, the number of components that can be inexpensively crammed onto an integrated circuit doubles. The more tightly you pack transistors, the fast electrical signals can zip around the chip. Moore's Law held for decades since it was first suggested in 1965, primarily due to processor manufacturers making the continuous advances in how small they could make the transistor. Realistically, though, Moore's Law was never going to hold forever, as it gets harder and harder to shrink components, the smaller they get. The designers are now at the 3 and 5 nanometer scale. The diameter of silicon atom is 0.2 nanometers. An atom is a building block of matter that cannot be broken apart any further using any chemical means. Designers are hitting a wall in the design of a computer. We are already at the 3 nanometer scale. At that size, tight packing of transistors results in greater heat generation and lower yields. The equipment foundries to build semiconductor chips are now $10 billion and up to make things that tiny. Eventually, manufacturers will run into the edge of what is physically possible. Processor manufacturers have struggled to continue to shrink the process size below 10 nanometers. One of the issues with creating an ever-shrinking CPU processor is that the yield of the process is not 100%. To overcome this issue, processor manufacturers have begun to separate out some of the functionality and components into one or more separate chips. Although they stay in the same overall package, these separated chips are smaller than a single monolithic chip would be and are known as chiplets. The original IBM PC released in August of 1981 was an assembly of existing electronics. The basic function of the 8080 CPU was computing. The primary system board contained slots for expansion cards for the expansion of memory, I.O. ports, communication interfaces, audio and video interfaces. To enable to do this, a standard had to be established as to how component parts communicate with each other. The ISA standard evolved over time until Today, it evolved into the PCI Express standards. CPU manufacturers soon incorporated many of those functions in the CPU design, thus speeding the communication interface with component parts. Engineering has replaced most of the functions of the expansion boards by adding the functions into the CPU 
which over time has evolved into a system on a chip. To continue Moore's law, engineers are going back to basics. Separate the CPU from the system on a chip. Now manufacturers are decoupling the functions in a system on a chip. A connecting chiplet is a physical piece of silicon. It encapsulates an IP or intellectual property subsystem. A chiplet is designed to integrate with other chiplets through package-level integration, typically through advanced package integration and through the use of standardized interfaces. A system on a chip is an integrated circuit, also known as a chip, that integrates all or most components of a computer or other electronic systems. These components almost always include a central processing unit, memory, input-output ports, and secondary storage, often alongside other components such as radio modems and a graphics processing unit, or on a single substrate or microchip. It may contain digital, analog, mixed signals, and often radio frequency signal processing functions. The connecting chiplet markets connects the systems in such a way that they act as a series or combination of chips that acts as a single chip. These chiplets are widely used in computing industries in order to improve the system performance and reliability of the computers. Manufacturers are gaining benefits through connecting chiplets, which include more easily specialized systems and higher yield, among others. But more importantly, they might lead to a big shift in the design and sale of hardware devices and semiconductor chips in the industry. These are some of the targeted end products that might become a small, specialized chiplet meant to be combined in the same package with both a general-purpose processor and many other specialty chiplets. Each individual chiplet doesn't even need to use the same process node. It's entirely possible to have both 7 nanometers and 14 nanometers base chiplets in the same overall package. Using a different process node can help save costs as it is easier to make larger nodes and yields are generally higher as the technology is less cutting edge. For example, in AMD second generation, EPYC service CPUs, the CPU processor cores are split across eight separate chiplets, each using the 7 nanometer processor node. A separate 14 nanometer node chiplet is also used to process the I.O. or input-output of the chiplets and the overall CPU package. Intel is designing some of its future CPUs to have two separate CPU processor chips, each which runs on a different process node. The idea is that the older, larger node can be used for tasks with lower power requirements, while the newer, smaller node CPU cores can be used when maximum performance is needed. The design using a split processing node would be especially useful for Intel, which has struggled to achieve acceptable yields for its 10 nanometer process. Rather than manufacturing a processor on a single piece of silicon with a desired number of cores, chiplets allow manufacturers like AMD and Intel to use multiple smaller chips to make up a larger integrated circuit. Multiple chiplets working together in a single integrated circuit are known as multi-chip modules, that's MCMs. It's part of a packaging architecture. Chiplets refer to the independent constituents which make up a larger chip built out of multiple smaller dies. 
Chiplets are officially the future of processor design. AMD, ARM, UK, and Intel all support the new processor interface. Modern processors are made up of billions of tiny transistors, and shrinking them steadily has let chip manufacturers keep pace with Moore's Law. But what if the processors themselves could shrink? That's the vision behind chiplets. Smaller processor components take some of the load off the CPUs, which themselves could also be designed as chiplets. Semiconductor industry leaders include Intel, AMD, Samsung, Taiwan Semiconductor, and Arm UK came together to announce a new universal chiplet interface, which they hope will accelerate chiplet innovation in the future. The new consortium is called Universal Chiplet Interconnect Express, that's UCIE, and its purpose is to standardize the die-to-die interconnects for chiplet designs in the future with an open-source approach that any industry player can use. However, absent from this consortium, notably, was NVIDIA, but that might not matter much since all three of the world's leading semiconductor foundries, that's Intel, Taiwan Semiconductor, and Samsung, are all participating. What this means for the process design will ultimately be up to engineers. But in short, this will allow better integration of chiplets, which are smaller processor components that take some of the load off of the central processing cores, which themselves could also be designed as chiplets. Part of the appeal of the UCIE is that it gives the industry more flexibility in processor design in a way that allows it to interface with other components on a motherboard through PCIe and other connections. Chiplet design offers all kinds of advantages over the existing all-in-one component paradigm. For one, chiplets do not need to use the same processor node, so you can have a mix of 5 nanometers chiplets that handle the high-performance task alongside 12 nanometers and 14 nanometer chiplets that focus more or less on less rigorous tasks. With a new open chiplet standard, industry has an important new tool at its disposal as it grapples with the scaling challenges presented by physics not the coming end of Moore's Law. A coalition including AMD, ARM, UK, and Intel has launched a universal chiplet interconnect express, standard meant to ease die-to-die connection in hardware and software. If it all goes well, a designer could mix and match chiplets from different companies to create the ideal system on a chip. The alliance has already ratified UCIE 1.0 specifications. The partners include a mix of chip and cloud heavyweights like Google, Meta, Microsoft, Qualcomm, Samsung, and Taiwan Semiconductor. It could take a long while before you see chips built using the new standard. The UCIE group still has to work on defining the form factor protocols and other details. The appeal for the companies involved is clear, though. Companies could speed up development of CPUs and system on a chip by using ready-made chiplet designs instead of crafting their own from scratch each time. They could also sell chiplets to other companies and increase the reach of their technology. Chips might become more homogeneous, but they might show up sooner or deliver more consistent performance. That could be helpful in a whole host of devices ranging from phones 
through to the servers that power cloud services. Presenting Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston with their technology chatter. Zombie shipping containers disrupting economy. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, you said something about containers and just said, that's all I'm going to give you. All right. That's all. Yeah, that's that's right. I learned this uh, from a friend of mine who you've met who knows a lot about supply chain. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, this is about, oh, you've heard the news about containers not leaving the ports because of all the backups as a yeah. result yeah. Of, yeah. of the pandemic. As it happens, some of those containers were shipped by companies that have since gone out of business and are being shipped to companies that have since gone out of business. They are zombie freight. That is, you know, I had not thought about this, but yeah, that, that has got to be a really big issue. Oh, really big and getting bigger. And you'll understand when we go into a couple of layers here. Okay, go on. Yeah. Those containers are eventually put up for auction and it's like storage wars on steroids. Okay. All right. All you get is a bill of lading, which might say 6,000 units, 1X34719 alpha stroke stroke or something. Yeah, Whatever that yeah, code yeah. is. Undecodable. Undecodable. So you bid on it. And what do you get? Well, you might pay $400 to get 6,000 65-inch 4K TV sets. Okay. Right? No name brand, but okay, yeah. Yeah, well, the brand's out of business. Yeah, yeah. And now, and now you can sell them. And that's 6,000 sets that traditional manufacturers can't sell. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. stores won't sell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, because the buyers went for the bargain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now multiply this times clothes and other consumer electronics and tools and all the stuff that's in those containers. And what you have is a collective threat to the financial health of existing companies and to their ability to maintain employees. Yeah, yeah. So jobs, because that's going to be a serious disruption. I mean, forget the supply chain part. It's 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 a serious disruption in the pricing portion of everything. So all of a sudden, somebody's got you know six thousand of these no name TVs, and they're going to be blowing these out at a ridiculously low price because they bought it for four hundred. And you know they can sell each of these. You said sixty five inch, sixty five inch screens for a hundred bucks each. They're making a killing off of it, aren't they? And they're not going to go and, that low because right. they're there to make money. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, you, you don't want to buy the container with 9 million heads of lettuce because that's not going to be so interesting anymore. <laughs> but you've got all this other stuff going down. And what worries me is that speculators mm-hmm. have learned about this and mm-hmm. they're starting mm-hmm. to do the bums rush on it. Uh, you know, it's gold rush. I'm going to make a lot of money. Well, OK, fine. Well, uh, yeah, we we saw a bit of that when Storage Wars was a big hit. People would dive yeah. in and they would go and they would put money down on, you know, at their, at their local Junk. storage <laughs> yeah. plus 
whatever lot and they would be getting junk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolute junk. Absolute junk. It's not abandoned by somebody who had a lot of money, right? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we're, we're looking at companies that have gone out of business creating unemployment. Mm-hmm. And now as a result of their goods coming in late and having no owner on either side, mm-hmm. they're going to cost other competitors money. They're going to cost both sides, both the original failed company and the new company trying to make a living jobs. Mm-hmm. Employment's going to suffer. Not that, I mean, if you can do anything halfway well, there are 18 jobs for you out there right now at more money than you made before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... It job market yeah, but yeah. I, when I got wind of this, <clears throat> pardon me, when I got wind of this and then when I discovered how many speculators were in their gold rush mentality, mm. that started to worry me. Then again, if it clears the ports and if they take all of those containers and turn them into those tiny houses <laughs> <laughs> we'll have solved the housing crisis yes uh, you know it, it, it's all so bizarre so weird uh, and nobody's going to nobody's going to take enough notice of it mm-hmm. to understand that it is an economic it's a factor in our economy mm-hmm. right now yeah, and we'll, yeah. we'll probably be that for another year and a half Sure. Uh, although if anybody finds a container with red brimmed hats, I'm interested. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who are not aware, Marty, uh, Marty has had a fascination with red hats since before the, before the red hat Linux days, uh, you know, and actually red hat is still around. But uh, yeah, it's uh, well, it's, they're not all fedoras. Not all fedoras. Okay. You might want to explain fedora. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Fedora, the Indiana Jones hat is a fedora. Well, yeah, but, but it's yeah. also another branch of Linux. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is that too. Yes. <laughs> so, so. What's TRS-80? Oh, I'm sorry. Say again. What about TRS-80s? Um, thank goodness it was not TRS-80. <laughs> <laughs> now that goes back a few years. Oh, and Marty, oh, I, I I don't know if you've been following. Uh, I'll tell you after the, I'll tell you in just a moment. Oh. Somebody's, somebody's leveraging the Radio Shack brand for a cryptocurrency. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is Benjamin Rockwell. That's Marty Winston. You're listening to Computer Talk Radio. Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Marty. The upcoming 46th Annual Original Personal Computer Festival, otherwise known as TCF, the original and oldest computer festival in the world, is March the 19th, 2022. It is a virtual festival via Zoom, and the website is tcf-nj.org. The time for the festival is from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, and the keynote speaker is Bob Kopp. Disrupting Environmental Climate Changing Using Technology, and he is the co-author of the UN World Climate Change Report. He is from the Rutgers Institute for Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences. Saturday, March 19, 2022, the time is from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, and the website is 
tcf-nj.org. Public Service Announcements Computer Club Meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State Region Since most club meetings are online, you are most welcome to attend any of the online meetings. Log on to the club website for more information on Remote Meeting ID. The New York Amateur Computer Club has its meeting Thursday, March the 10th. Meeting time is at 7 p.m., and there will be lightning talks. Educating with Zoom and iPhones, Epson ES50 sheet-fed portable scanner, and Cash App, it's a full-function free tax preparation app. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, March the 11th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is limac.org. The Brookdale Computer Users Group meets March the 24th, Thursday. Meeting time is at 6.45 p.m., and the presentation is How Our Most Popular Games Are Affected by Computers and Artificial Intelligence. It's a virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is bcug.com. Just a reminder that Daylight Saving Times begins Sunday, March the 13th, and ends Sunday, November the 6th. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to Hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch, and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station next week.